Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. It is time to bring in somebody now who knows a lot about this morning's jobs report because he was the one receiving the calls about job openings and trying to fill them as well. Tom Gimble is CEO of global staffing company LaSalle Network. You weren't maybe exactly the person answering the phones, Tom, but I'm sure you have in the past. (laughs) So, Tom, what was the month like? I mean, we're all heartbroken for the people that are looking for jobs and can't find them. Is there much of that? You know, the the job market's really strong. I think what we saw today is that we added over 600,000 jobs. The unemployment rate dropped. Um, it's, it's never going to be perfect for everybody, but this is a good report. And we have to realize that we have the pandemic, and that's hospitality workers, airlines, and these restaurant workers that add to the unemployment number being what it is. And if we didn't have that and people were dining in and traveling and staying at hotels, it would be a very different situation. It's fascinating. You know, you see the daily coronavirus case load just increase every day now, and we're at 126,000. How concerned are you for all of the people that, you know, call and all of your clients, Tom, that we're going to see lockdowns again and business closings? You know, I'm not so sure that we're going to we're going to see the lockdown. I think what it'll be interesting to see now with the election, hopefully somewhat over. Um, and and when we get a new a new stimulus package of, of how that affects it, I think what we'll see is south of the Mason Dixon line, you're going to have people being able to eat outside and, and that'll be OK. I think when we get into the northern cities and, and what happens, I think that even with a Biden presidency, that there's people that the majority of the population that wants to have the opportunity to go out and go eat and have things open. So I'm, I'm fairly optimistic that, that come January, um, things are going to open up a little bit. Yeah. What were the industries then, Tom, that you saw that were picking up this month? So professional services really seem to be, to be continue to grow. And what we're seeing is a lot of IT workers continuing to be a hotspot, back office accounting and finance. And now with, um, uh, hospitals for the past few months being able to treat people for uh, non-COVID-related um, surgeries and procedures. We've seen medical health care and uh, back office in those settings, as well as uh, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, things like that, really starting to pick up. We were just speaking with Lauren Sauer of Johns Hopkins University, who said that that portion of the you know, the labor market, at least those who have been working, are absolutely exhausted, Tom. How many people out there, you know, are in need of a genuine break from this? I think that's really the interesting point you bring up, Bonnie. And what, what, what that is, is you've got a lot of people that are working standard jobs um, and that are going into their, into their office, whether it's blue-collar workers, healthcare professionals, um, police, firemen, retail workers and then you have white collar what i call white collar privilege is people who are at home in their house they don't have to leave and they're complaining because they're on zoom meetings all day and we've got really a lack of empathy towards these people in the healthcare space in the in the the crucial worker category that we've got to get a lot more empathy for those people and and realize what's going on here but unfortunately when when the your time is called to, to work 
and and there aren't enough people in those areas, you have to do it. Yeah, and I mean, especially if you don't know if your job's going to exist in a couple of months, right? Because what's tragic is that there's absolutely no guarantee that once coronavirus is under control, that all of these people working on the front lines will have jobs because hospital systems might be bankrupt by then. Well, I, I, I think that's a little bit of a drastic uh, perspective, Bonnie, from the standpoint of I don't think the hospital systems will be bankrupt. I think that what we've seen with the governments, whether it be the airlines or the automotive industry, is that if there's big hospital chains and there's cash flow problems and revenue problems, that the government can provide, provide a stimulus package there. We're not going to let that aspect of our health care system go down. And I think that the jobs will be there. And what we've seen, I've got a CEO of a surgical practice in the, in, in the Chicagoland area, and they are actually going to have a better year this year than ever before because the buildup of people uh, over April, May, and June just exploded July, August, September, and October, and they were doing so much more from people who wanted to get things taken care of. And I think we're going to continue to see that elective procedures are going to increase, and I think there's really a sense in, this, in society from working-class people to blue-collar to executive is that people are, are feeling now that you have to enjoy your life. And once COVID's down, uh, I think that you're really going to see an increase in travel. You're going to see an increase in tourism. You're going to see mm-hmm. an increase in elective procedures. That there's going to be an increase in auto sales, what we saw in the third quarter with GM's numbers, which were really good. You're going to see that consumer, consumer uh, purchasing is going to increase a lot in 2021. You know, Tom... What advice do you have for those out there who have been barely putting food on the table for their families, who may have had just a wonderful job before now, but weren't really concerned about something like a pandemic? Uh, You know, I I walk home from work and I see pantry lines, I see food lines, and I know that there are people in those lines that have never seen the inside of a pantry before. What do you say to those people trying to get up and put on a brave face every day? So I'd say, number one, um, it will it will end. Number two, it's, it's not that all dissimilar from 2008 um, in the financial crisis when we thought actually the, the whole system was going to crash. And so there's, there is the empathy side for all of us to realize that this population is different than was 2008, and we have to realize that the next time it could be us. So we've got to care for our fellow human beings. I think for those that, that are newly unemployed and living hand-to-mouth, there are jobs out there, and whether it be working in a warehouse for the holiday season, whether it be doing call center work, um, whether it be um, some sort of hospitality job outside, it may even be having to relocate to warmer weather um, and, and pick up seasonal work. But there are opportunities. You just can't have an entitlement aspect of this shouldn't be happening to me because woe is me won't get any of us through this. And my business lost a ton of business in April and May but we didn't lay off a soul. We actually hired more. We fired people who weren't having a good attitude and good work ethic. And now our business is at pre-COVID levels. And I think if you stick with things and you believe that, that you're doing everything you can, that there is opportunity out there. You just have to find it. 
Tom, wise words from a man who's been in this business for a long, long time and has match made millions of people to jobs and they may not be the jobs that they were expecting to get or wanting to get, but uh, I'm sure there have been a lot of happy tales coming out of LaSalle Network. So thank you very much for joining us again this month after the jobs report, which again showed that the economy is creating jobs, maybe not as many as we'd hoped, but still... There was a lot of jobs created last month. Tom Gimble, CEO of global staffing company LaSalle Network. Well, I'm delighted to welcome in now the Chief Equity Investment Officer for Eaton Vance. Eddie Perkin joins us from Boston with $507 plus billion in assets under management at Eaton Vance. Eddie, a lot on your shoulders. Would you have predicted what has happened so far and, and what happens next if you did? Vani, good to be with you. Thank you for your question. Yes, uh, you know, coming into coming into the election period, uh, the market was beginning to play with the idea that uh, value stocks, small caps, international stocks could begin to rotate back into favor. Um, the expectation uh, that the market had was that there'd be a blue wave, meaning primarily that uh, not only would Biden win the White House, but that you would uh, have Democrats uh, take both uh, chambers of Congress. That second piece, the Senate, is what may not ultimately come through. And that, I think, is why on Wednesday you had sort of a return to how things have been uh, most of this year and in prior years where the uh, mega cap tech stocks led on Wednesday. But with um, with the possibility that uh, the Democrats could still take the Senate, the prediction markets, the betting markets have that at about 25% with the likelihood that Biden will be the next president. Um, There is a sort of expectation of uh, higher interest rates that would come from that. And then the jobs number today uh, magnifies that. So everything is trading off of rates right now. The growth value trade is driven off of rates uh, and uh, inflation expectations. And so that really, the 10-year yield really is driving uh, the rotation in the equity markets uh, this week. Yeah, so interesting. I just want to point out that if that did happen in the Senate, we wouldn't know until January because we'd be counting on runoff races as far as I understand it. Also, I do want to point out that we're waiting on the Georgia Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, to brief on the election and the work of the election officials right now. So this is an ever-changing chessboard even as we you know, move through the hours today. If we do get a Biden presidency and the Senate stays red or we don't know about the Senate until next year, what will you tell your clients about tax and spending and regulatory policies? What will your assumptions be? Well, it makes it very uncertain, right? Because we've got a little under two months until the end of the year. And normally you have financial advisors and clients doing a lot of end of year uh, tax planning. That includes charitable giving. It includes... Uh, in a normal year, it would include take, harvesting losses, taking taking tax losses, which is something that Eaton Vance and our affiliate Parametric uh, does a lot of. We we really focus on after-tax returns. And so we were thinking this year, if the Democrats take the Senate, then it's likely you're going to have increases to capital gains tax rates next year. And it actually might make sense to reverse the normal uh, protocol and take gains this year, pull your gains forward into a lower tax regime. But given that it looks like we won't know the makeup of the Senate until these two Georgia runoffs, which are going to happen, I believe it's January 5th, people are going to have to make end-of-year tax decisions 
with uncertain information about what the political makeup of the Senate is. And I think that makes it particularly tricky this year. Right, particularly, as you say, if we're seeing a stock market that continues to rally. On this rotation, you know, I know you're very interested in the value growth rotation. And we just heard our cross-asset reporter, Sarah Ponzak, talk about how the landscape changed just this week alone, from the beginning of the week to the end of the week. Where in value would you be looking for gains? I think value comes in many forms. So it comes in the form of cyclical stocks that could be industrials or commodity-based stocks like energy, basic materials, all of which have lagged. It comes in the form of financial stocks, particularly the banks, where higher interest rates that, uh, that, that could come from uh, higher fiscal spending and, and, and bigger fiscal deficits, that would be good for the banks because, of course, they earn a spread on, between short and long-dated interest rates. Um, and then it comes in other kind of non-traditional forms. So small cap stocks tend to be more value oriented and do well when values in favor. And international stocks, uh, particularly Europe and Japan, uh, do do better. So I, the divergence, the spread between what is cheap and what is expensive is as wide as it's ever been. So if you get the right catalyst, there could be a significant rotation into some of those areas I just mentioned. Yeah, so in that situation then, would you actually tell clients to put money to work or to, to, to rotate out of more growthy trades and into value right now? I would, and I would do it gradually. I wouldn't try and call the absolute bottom of the, of the value market. Uh, I would do it over a period of time, dollar cost average. I would also advise people to look at where your target allocations were at the beginning of this year. If you had a certain percentage of your money in U.S. versus non-U.S. or in large versus small or growth versus value, the performance of the market this year has caused a lot of drift in your portfolio. Even if you've done nothing, uh, if you've just sat tight, uh, your portfolio now looks very different in terms of its mix than it did on January 1. So just, you know, an easy way to do this is just to rebalance back to where you were at the beginning of the year uh, or rebalance to whatever targets your financial advisor advises. uh, And that is a a way of taking a small step in the direction that I'm describing. Eddie, how much are you following the TikTok of, uh, you know, the actual ballots counted? And how much does something like this morning's jobs report, which was okay, but slightly disappointing, how much does that, you know, impact what you're watching? Well, of course, we you know, we've, we're focused on the long term, but the election does have an impact on that, particularly if uh, if you get uh, new policies around taxes and regulations and, and, and trade. So it is worth following. It's also very, of course, interesting uh, theater. Um, but it does seem likely to my eyes that, uh, that, that Biden is going to pull this out. And the bigger question, of course, as we said earlier, is what, what happens in the Senate. Yeah, exactly. And, and as we both said, we may not know that until... January. So that'll be a fun couple of months. What gets done in the next two months if we have that kind of situation where Biden is president and there are court cases from the Trump campaign that are still live and we don't fully know the makeup of the Senate? Is it a complete lame duck session until January and February? Well, it's normally a lame duck session anyway under mm, normal yeah. circumstances, but of course you, you're going to have a lot of activity uh, in the courts and in the media. Uh, I can't even begin to imagine how much uh, money is going to pour into Georgia to try and win those two two seats if the if the Senate is on the line there. But um, I'm a little surprised, frankly, that the market is you know the market the S and P 500 month to day, which is just six days old, is up seven and a half percent, and that's um, that's striking given all of this uncertainty, right? 
Um, we're talking about court battles. We're talking about accusations of fraud. We're still not 100% sure who the president will be. We don't know who's going to have the Senate. And yet the market is rising in the face of that. And it's, uh, it's quite striking. What's the most major complaint or query that you're getting from your top clients now, your most wealthy clients? Complaint? Yeah. Um, I'm sure they complain from time to time. <laughs> not about you guys, but just about the state of things. Yeah, I think uh, there's been a lot of uncertainty, really going back to the April-May time period where things looked so bad for the economy and yet the market bottomed in late March and began to rise. And I think there's just been, uh, it's taken a long time for people to get their minds around the idea that stocks can go up even when the economy's in tough shape. And I think it's a function of a couple things. One is uh, the uh, the fact that the market, stock market's always looking forward. So if we can treat 2020 as a one-time write-off on the earnings and economic front, uh, then we can go back to the earnings power that companies have uh, in the longer term. Obviously, if you're a small business who's really struggling, that, that doesn't sound very good. But for public equities, for large companies, they are able to weather through this. And uh, there's hope that uh, you know, once a vaccine comes, we'll be able to go back to normal and back to the earnings power these, these companies have. And so that's part of it. And the other part is just the aggressive uh, Fed policy, the Fed basically saying we're here to backstop risk assets. And, uh, and that's, that's another reason why stocks have been going up despite the, uh, the economic news being relatively poor. Okay, Eddie, thank you. I will let you back to your screens. I would imagine that we'll all be glued to them all day long. Eddie Parkin is Chief Equity Investment Officer at Eaton Vance in Boston, which has well more than $500 million in assets under management. Bloomberg Opinion, informed perspectives and expert data-driven commentary on breaking news. I want to get to the Bloomberg Opinion in just a moment, but first to update you on Larry Kudlow's comments. Just a few moments ago at the White House, uh, President Trump's top economic advisor said he expects a peaceful transfer of power if Biden wins the presidency. He was gaggling again outside the White House, and in this case, he was responding to a question from CNBC. He said, we abide by the rule of law, and so will this president. So he sounds fairly certain that there will be a peaceful transfer of power. He also mentioned that President Trump, Mitch McConnell, and Steve Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary, still want a stimulus deal. We knew that McConnell had come out and said he wanted a deal now by the end of the year. But also, of course, we're not quite sure about Nancy Pelosi or what her status is right now. So let's get to how... Everybody outside the United States is viewing this. And for that, let's bring in Bloomberg Opinion columnist Lionel Laurent, who covers the European Union in France typically. But uh, today is very, very definitely covering the U.S. election. He says there are numerous uncertainties surrounding the U.S. presidential election. But the good news for the European Union is that its unofficial preferred candidate looks close to taking the White House. So, Lionel, Joe Biden, why is he the preferred candidate? Well, I think uh, because he isn't Donald Trump uh, and because everything he has said uh, points to a more productive and a more uh, friendly tone over the over the next four years. If he becomes president, he said that he would rejoin the climate accords. He said that he would uh, rejoin the uh, the Iran deal if, if Iran complied and uh, that the WHO would also see more support as well. So I think in terms of the good news, it's that you are likely to get a much more stable and predictable and friendly uh, transatlantic relationship. However, I do think that there are going to be some uncertainties and that Europeans in general will view this not as a kind of total 
return to life before Trump. Right, because the European Union in the, in the last four years has had its own internal difficulties as well, and very many of them. So if it is a Biden presidency, and again, this is a hypothetical, we don't know yet that that's going to be the case, but if it were to be, what would Joe Biden's approach be regarding Europe versus Britain? How would he stay out of that fight? Well, I'm, I, I, I think we know enough to know that, firstly, Brexit is not some major strategic priority for the U.S., and we know that the Democrats in the House still very much want a deal that respects the Good Friday Agreement. We also know that Joe Biden sees uh, Germany as the big uh, un- unfair target of, of Trump's anger, and so I think there would definitely be a hand extended to Germany and the EU. So, so that, that isn't so much the uncertainty. However, I think that France and Germany know that over the past 20 years, not just the past four years, there are fundamental differences between Europe and the US. The US cares more about China now, containing China. It cares more about pivoting to Asia. It cares less. It, it cares also more about domestic policy. Uh, defending Europe and, and paying for European security is, is less high a priority. And if you throw in things like tech policy, uh, the role of the dollar versus the role of the euro, a, a more kind of geo-economic world, then I think these will tell you that the, that the Europeans are not going to just sit around for the next four years and, and assume that everything will just revert to how it was before Trump. So, Lionel, beyond sort of, you know, better relations with multilateral and transnational organizations, and also treaties, of course, like the Paris Treaty. Beyond that, what could the European Union use the United States for? So I think the, the big silver lining here is that China is, is the priority that is shared by both Democrats and Republicans, and even uh, the EU. So I think that the EU as a trading bloc that's where its power lies. And I think the EU should uh, move towards the US and Biden say, look, we can help uh, really raise the bar on, for example, subsidies and unfair trade practices from China. But in return, they should encourage the US to let the EU build its own institutions, take on more of its defense responsibilities, and also become more uh, economically assertive, again, against Silicon Valley companies and defending the role of the euro globally. I think that could be a potential kind of trade because China looms so large in the American psyche. Yeah, it's interesting because, as you say, China would be the the third party in the relationship at that point if there were to be, you know, a Joe Biden and European Union allyship, if you like. What do you think China would do in that scenario? Would China try to ally with everybody or would China try to, to play one off the other? Well, I definitely think that uh, China, in, in terms of trade, is seeing more pressure everywhere. However, mm. I, if, if you look at how China is reacting to, for example, uh, COVID-19, you can, you can clearly see a, a kind of post-COVID world uh, happening where, again, uh, geopolitics and geo- geoeconomics is, is even more important than it, than it was before. Um, China may well try to divide Europe, as it always has done, and it, and it may succeed. But I really think that the EU as a whole realizes that it has a lot to gain from getting more tough on China while, the, while defending its own market. Beyond looking to the United States and who is the next president, 
Europe internally has plenty of problems and one of the problems is that a lot of voters in Europe are unhappy and there is a huge strain of populism which is only gaining steam in places like France and Eastern Europe and Italy and really, you know, Britain, not that that's really Europe anymore, but there are so many countries that are seeing sort of unhappiness at the polls. Do we suddenly see a shift, you know, post post this election here in the US to watching very closely what happens in Europe in terms of strife and, you know, protests and difficulty and demonstrations? I'm honestly not sure we we can extrapolate too much. I do think that uh, Brexit and Trump sort of arrived like a crash in, in, in 2016, and they seem to be running out of steam in 2020. That, that I see, is, is connected. However, a lot of the situations you, you describe are to do with many things, country-specific things, and, and they probably are going to get worse, again, as a result of the economic inequality that will take place after uh, COVID-19, given that the second wave is, is still battering these countries. So I'm really not sure we, we can extrapolate that much. However, again, I do think that Europe and a more assertive Europe and a more integrated bloc uh, is going to be seen as the answer to a lot of these issues by the government. Very briefly, Neil, we're out of time, but uh, what happens to Angela Merkel? How long more is she chancellor for and, and who takes over? Oh, well, this is this is a big question. The, uh, the, the race to succeed her has uh, begun and uh, the transatlantic relationship is going to be part of that. Again, I, I do think that Germany is going to be less uh, inclined to simply uh, just take this constant pro-American stance and assume that everything will just go on as before. I think France and Germany are going to become a lot more aligned on this point that Europe needs to look after its own interests. Lionel, thank you so much for joining us today. It's always a fascinating conversation with Lionel Laurent, who is a Bloomberg opinion columnist, typically covering Europe and France and European affairs for us, and we thank him. Stay tuned. Next hour, more election count updates. All right, it is time to bring in Lauren Sauer. We love chatting with her. She knows everything about the coronavirus and where the research is at, where the potential for vaccines is at and so on. Lauren is now Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine at Johns Hopkins University, and we really thank her for giving us some time. Lauren, we're up to 126,000 cases a day in the United States. How much further can we raise from here? Is this exponential yet? I think that's what is on the top of everyone's mind right now. I mean, you know, to go from 100,000 for the first time um, and then one day later have over 120,000 new infections, it's it's really, really concerning to see. Um, and I, I think the fear is that we are seeing exponential growth and we're not doing anything to change that. You know, there's no new, there's no new approaches to lockdowns or, um, you know, uh, new strategies for masking. These, these very basic public health interventions are not being pushed any harder than they were yesterday or the day before or the day before that. And I think um, we're going to see the impact of that for a long time to come. We're obviously, you know, several months out from March when we didn't even know what we would need in, in a case like a pandemic. And then we realized that we were short on PPE. We were short on, you know, ventilators. We were short on hospital beds. Where are we now still short? Are there states where we're still short and, and can other states help or are we still at a loss for some of these, these, these necessary items? 
I think we've made a lot of progress in um, ventilator access and in PPE, but we're moving back into respiratory virus season. Um, and we're moving back into the winter where people will be more indoors, we'll be on the other side of the holidays soon enough, and we have the potential to see um, an exceptional number of case growth across the United States. You know, when we saw those um, severe resource constraints in some regions of the country, it was just that, some regions of the country, some specific areas that were hardest hit, but the potential for places all across the country to be very hard hit and, and need these surge capacity and, and resource scarce resource issues um, happen is more concerning because when it's just a few a few places in the country, you can move resources from one side of the country to the next, right? You can mm. borrow from a neighbor, you can borrow, you know, a, a neighboring state. You can't do that when everyone across the country is experiencing resource constraints and bed capacity issues and personnel gaps. Yeah, it's terrifying. And on the personnel gaps, I mean, hospitals have been under pressure and under strain because people have been putting off other kinds of, you know, surgeries, elective surgeries and so on. And that's that's also causing health problems. We haven't even got to that. We still have to deal with coronavirus. But are hospitals staffed enough? Do they have enough funding? No, I think both the answer to both those questions is just no. I'm, I think the staffing... Um, is, has ramped up and there's been some um, unique stra- staffing strategies that hospitals have implemented. But, um, you know, nurses, respiratory therapists, physicians, um, we're going to need all of these, an increase in all these staff to manage any increase in, in surge capacities. And, and that's just not in the hospitals. That's in long-term care facilities. That's in field hospitals. That's in outpatient centers. When you see the volume of patients increase so significantly, we're going to need staffing to, and resources to support all that. And we can't just borrow from other areas when all of the areas are affected. Yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty terrifying. Back in March, and I, I was in New York City, you know, after the first couple of weeks, people were going around like zombies. And I, I don't mean that in you know, any disrespectful way to those who were actually sick, but even healthy people were so shell-shocked from what was going on and the thousands of deaths and just the pain. Are we going to see that in certain areas of the country, including New York again, Lauren? Yeah, I think we're all very worried about that. I mean, you know, it's it's potentially the same experience, but with a much more exhausted, a much more overworked, a much more overwhelmed um, workforce. And so, and, and not just workforce, just community members, right? So everyone is experiencing this trauma together. Um, and without the mitigating factors that we talked about in the beginning of our conversation, um, it's going to keep increasing and people are going to continue to be affected. And we're going to continue to bear both the physical and emotional and mental health toll that this is going to enact on our population for years to come. I mean, um, the healthcare workforce is absolutely exhausted and to see no end in sight and the cases increasing like this is it has the potential to be really overwhelming. We have to put strategies in place to protect our healthcare workers, not just physically um, and in safety mechanisms, but also in their mental and emotional health. I can absolutely only imagine. Lauren, finally and briefly, if it is Joe Biden who is designated the next president, does anything change in the coming months? Uh, I mean, you know, can Joe Biden make any kind of a difference in terms of the, the, the policy, given that he won't actually be president until January? Yeah, I think he can begin to make the difference so that it, that 
concrete steps can be taken as soon as he takes the presidency, the office of the presidency. And um, I think the hope is just that there's no detrimental impact over the next few months as the transition happens. But you can see him already starting to build um, the teams of people that he's going to use to respond to um, the crisis that we're in. So I think that there's good signs that he's going to implement as soon as he can strategies to change the course of the pandemic. But I think it, it is a little bit of a wait and see situation. Lauren, our thoughts are with you and your staff and everybody else uh, who is battling this on every front. Lauren Sauer is Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine at Johns Hopkins University and she joins us weekly and more than that in fact on Bloomberg to give us updates on the situation. 126,000 cases. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.